Hey guys, this is Justin Jackson, host of the Justin Time Sports Podcast, where in today's episode we will be talking about the NCAA joining the 21st century, covering the Last Dance Bulls documentary, doing a final NFL draft recap, and telling you my plan to restart the NBA season. Now sit back and get ready to learn something. Alright guys, what a wonderful week in sports the past week has been. Several major topics occurred and we're going to start off with the NCAA finally coming into the 21st century. Or at least starting to come into the 21st century. A committee for the NCAA is pushing the idea to allow players to profit off their NLI, which is their name, image, and likeness. Now this is something that is a direct response to the NBA G League pathway. They noticed that three of their top recruits, three five-star recruits, including Isaiah Todd and Jalen Green and Deshaun Nix, have decided to go the NBA G League pathway, decommitting or not committing at all to major universities, which is directly taking money out of the NCAA's pocket. Those three guys that have decided to take this pathway are all joining a newly formed team in Southern California. Now, the reason why the G League pathway is even as popular as it is, or as beneficial as it is, is because Adam Silver, the NBA commissioner, wanted to prevent guys from going overseas if they decide to skip the college. LaMelo Ball and RJ Hampton went overseas this past season to Australia, which has been a popular decision. Uh, Emmanuel Moutier went to China. It's not a common thing, but every so often you get a top flight prospect that decides to decommit from a school and go overseas in chase of quick money and getting in the professional ranks faster. The G League pathway will offer up to 500 grand to a prospect for a season. They'll get a scholarship to go back to school with if and when they choose to do so after their playing careers are over. And they get endorsement deals, they can sign an agent, and they still enter the draft like a normal player after the season's over. So, in response to this, the NCAA decides to start the process of allowing guys to profit off their name and likeness and stuff like YouTube, social media, signing endorsement deals, and they can be identified for the sport they play and their school. But in no way can the school directly pay and their boosters are also banned from doing them unless they have a separate business entity, in which case policing that would be an issue. Now I know one of the big things about this was fairness of competition. They're trying to prevent all the top prospects from going to Clemson and going to Alabama and going to LSU and going to Florida and going to USC just because they have businesses out there that'll pay them more. Like YouTube is located in a certain city, so maybe you know they'll pay more. Silicon Valley might help bring back UCLA football. Oh wait, all the top prospects already go to those schools. Or maybe they're trying to keep all the top basketball prospects from going to Duke and UNC and Baylor and Oklahoma and stopping Will Wade from pulling guys to LSU. Oh, oh wait, all the top prospects already go to those schools. The balance of competition is not going to change and nor will the structure of the basic endorsement deal of a contract. For instance, Nike is not going to pay the number one prospect in the country to attend an HBCU to play basketball because his marketability and his value greatly increases if he's wearing the Duke Blue Devil uniform instead of wearing Southern University. 
the top football player is not going to get as big, nearly as big of an endorsement deal if he decides to attend his local small university instead of going to play for LSU or Alabama because his marketability and his notoriety at a smaller school is greatly diminished from his value at a bigger school. I think this is a little bit too late. Uh, the NBA already has a direct pathway called their G League pathway. And every spring league that's tried to start up, like the XFL and the AAF, all did not include age restrictions as a way to try and pull maybe a really good college junior from football that had to sit another year. And this way he can join the professional ranks a lot faster and get noticed by NFL teams faster with professional coaching. Now, I know the biggest thing when anybody ever hears collegiate athletes being paid for their likeness is will NCAA football and basketball return? And my answer to that is that it is highly unlikely. And the reason why I say it is highly unlikely is because of the way that the NCAA is allowing the players to be paid. Due to the fact that they're profiting off their own likeness and they can use their affiliation to a school to improve that likeness, but they cannot use that school directly. So for instance, Michigan State can't pay their starting quarterback X amount of thousands of dollars to wear Michigan State gear in a, in a YouTube video. Or they had a kicker that went to UCF a few years ago that he decided to stop playing collegiate football because the NCAA was either forcing him to demonetize his YouTube page or stop playing, give up his scholarship, stop playing football. So he decided to stop playing football and continue his YouTube career. UCF couldn't pay him to wear all UCF gear in a video or to promote UCF athletics on his website because that would be a direct violation of the new rule that the NCAA is putting in. However, that does prevent the NCAA video game because let's just say EA goes to the SEC coaches. So Nick Saban, Ed Ogeron, Lane Kiffin down at Ole Miss and decide, hey, we want to put your team along with the rest of college in the new NCAA video game. We want your players. EA would then have to go to every single player on the roster and negotiate an independent contract deal with each player in order to bring the NCAA game back. Now getting 105 guys per team to agree to be in the game will be extremely unlikely. Now, theoretically, could you sign the starters, maybe the top 40 players and fill in the bench with random artificial uh, players? You could. You could definitely do that. I mean, no one's going to notice if the backup left tackle is not in the game. Or no one's going to notice if the third string quarterback is not in the game. And that's something you could do. But I think for viability purposes, that you would want to sign every player, which is very, very unlikely. I think if they had allowed the conferences to dole out money based on where you attend school, then that would be something that EA could just go negotiate with the SEC. Okay, we're going to pay you five million dollars for the rights to come in body scan your players have their user have their full name and likeness and be able to go that way and then you disperse the five million dollars evenly over the thousand players that are in the sec for football but due to the fact that they're independent contractors this strongly limits the possibility of the game ever coming back because you need at least 75 to 90 percent of the stock players to agree in order for the game to have the authentic value that an NCAA game would need in order to return. 
And then after even negotiating with the players, they would have to go to the different powers that be and different conferences and different schools in order to negotiate to get, you know, scanning of the stadiums, making sure the uniforms are accurate, the right to even use logos, the right to use traditions, fight songs, the right to use traditions when walking into the field, for instance, like LSU taps the wind bar on the way out of the locker room. Clemson taps their rock for running down the large hill into their stadium. Auburn lets the war eagle go and plenty of other traditions that are throughout college football that make it what it is today, which is a tradition of some programs have a hundred year history and they've been doing the same tradition for 75, 80 years. And that is what makes certain programs what they are. You would need to negotiate with the players, then turn around and negotiate with the universities. And I think having to do double negotiation every year, especially with the players, new players coming in every year, you would need to do so much work. I don't think the NCAA or EA will be up first committing that kind of work to produce a video game. And for that reason, I don't think the NCAA games will be coming back. Alright guys, for our next topic, we're going to discuss the Last Dance documentary about the Chicago Bulls and their last run. Episodes 3 and 4 did not disappoint. I was so excited when I seen that Dennis Rodman was going to be the focal point of these episodes because Dennis Rodman gets a lot of chatter about his flamboyance and his act and his media presence and what he did for those teams but nobody really knows the behind the scenes stuff that went on with Dennis and to see that he in the middle of a season in the middle of a championship run decides to tell Phil Jackson yeah I need a vacation uh, I need to go to Vegas for a couple of days to clear my head and for Phil to not tell Michael Jordan himself but to have Dennis ask Jordan could he go to Vegas for a couple of days and Jordan looking at Rodman going, he's not coming back in 48 hours if we let him go. And according to Skip Bayless, the documentary misled what really happened there. So according to Skip Bayless, Rodman did come back from Vegas in 48 hours. He went back to Chicago. He just didn't rejoin the team. He wasn't ready to rejoin the team. So when Jordan went and got him out of the room, it was not out of the hotel room. It was out of... Rodman's downtown apartment which is why Rodman showed up in pajama pants some slippers and a white t-shirt he probably just got him out of bed Rodman's value to the Bulls was not lost on Michael Jordan Rodman's value to the Bulls was not lost on Phil Jackson but to take a small detour could you imagine if the third most important player on a championship team was wandering through Vegas, partying it up, doing God knows what with Lord knows who in the middle of a championship season. Can you imagine if Kevin Love was in Vegas while LeBron was trying to win the title in Cleveland? Or Draymond Green was in Vegas while the Warriors were trying to win? Or James Harden being in Vegas with the Baby Thunder? I mean, James Harden got grief for being in a nightclub after they'd already lost the series. And Dennis Rodman was practically celebrated for going to Vegas during the middle of the season. It wasn't all-star break. It wasn't though they had a few days off, so Rodman snuck to Vegas and snuck back. They played games without Rodman because he needed a vacation and went to Vegas. And I think that in of itself is absolutely amazing and shows his value 
and also gives a strong credit to Phil Jackson. He knew how to coach different players. He knew he could coach Michael Hard and coach him tough. He knew he can coach Dennis tough. But he also knew that when Dennis wasn't mentally in it, he had to let Dennis go. Whether it was, okay, Dennis didn't practice today, or he might have just rode the bike, or Dennis needed a couple days to go to Vegas. He allowed Dennis to go because he realized the value in coaching different players different ways, and that's showing Phil Jackson's ability to coach and ability to adapt to his players. The other big thing that was talked about in episodes three and four was the Bad Boy Pistons. Now, this was a team that is known for their football ways on the basketball court. The NBA hated them. The fans hated them because they would knock your favorite star out the air. They even had a set of rules, quote unquote, called the Jordan rules, where they literally said, we're not letting him leave the floor because if he leaves the floor, he's not human. So we can't do anything with him while he's in the air. We have to knock him down before he gets to the floor. Now, assistant coaches on that Pistons team are saying the Jordan rules were if he's on the low block, trapped from the top, or if he's on the wing, trap a certain way to make sure he gets the ball out of his hands. But everybody knows the Jordan rules were literally knock Michael Jordan down and out at any and all costs. I mean, they were pushing people in the back. They were clotheslining Jordan out of the air. They were football tackling him when they could. And due to the bad boy Pistons and their tactics, Michael Jordan had to reevaluate how he trained. He didn't lift a lot of weights. He's a basketball player. He did a bunch of cardio. He was about 200 pounds. Due to the bad boy Pistons and their ways, he bulked up to 215 pounds in an offseason to get prepared to go through the bad boy Pistons again. Now, I think Michael Jordan needed those Pistons to become the player he was because that was the last piece of real adversity that he was faced with. He... And in turn, grew Scottie Pippen up as well. But I think the bad boy Pistons get a negative light more than they should because they broke up the NBA's house party. Isaiah Thomas words, they broke up the NBA party, you know. The NBA was supposed to go from Bird to Magic to Michael. And right in the middle, there was this team from Detroit who didn't play like everybody else, who didn't have three stars like everybody else. And they should have won three titles, possibly could have won four titles in a row in the middle of the 80s with Bird, the big three Celtics, Magic's, Showtime Lakers, and Jordan's Bulls. Although baby Jordan Bulls, but the Jordan Bulls nonetheless. And little Isaiah Thomas and Joe Dumars and Bill Lambeer and Rick Mahorn were a bad call against Bill Lambeer on a Scott Hook from Kareem from winning three championships. And maybe you can look at another situation where they could have won four in a row. And I think that the Battle Pistons get a bad rep, a worse rep than they should because of their image. I mean, when they did the walk-off against Jordan, Isaiah Thomas said, Bird did it to us. And when Bird did it, it wasn't nearly the biggest thing as when we did it to Jordan. And the media absolutely crushed Isaiah Thomas and the Bad Boy Pistons because they were looking for something to crush them for. Yeah, you can hate their style of play, but they're winning championships, so you really can't fault them for doing what they're doing because it's working, and it's working for them. And so when they did the walk-off, when Jordan swept them out the playoffs and effectively ended their run, the media absolutely crushed them, and I think that's something that the NBA folklore in general were waiting on an opportunity to crush that bad boy Pistons team. And I just don't think that's right in a way they should be remembered. They should remember that as a two-time champion 
who was the little annoying brother who had to fight his way to get to the rings because they weren't as talented as those teams. So they had to play their way. They were perfect for the city of Detroit. They were perfect to have a leader like Isaiah Thomas had to overcome everything he had to overcome. And Bill Lambeer and Rick Mahorn and Joe Dumars and John Sally and the rest of that underdog team, even their coach Chuck Daly wasn't regarded as highly as he should have been and was honestly a shocker to even coach the 92 Dream Team because of his relationship with all the stars that was on the team. I mean, he physically beat all of them at a certain point by his football tactic styles and playing defense the way he did. And it got to see, I noticed something in this documentary. I noticed that Ron Harper played on the Cavs. Dennis Rodman played on the Pistons. How did all those players get to Chicago? I thought people didn't team up back then. I thought once you were on a team, you just played. You didn't switch teams. It was odd to see those very good players join Jordan's Bulls for the second three-peat. Well, that's interesting. I wonder how that happened. Could they have won it for agency? Trade, maybe. Did Jordan talk to those guys and try and get them on the team? We already seen Jordan playing with Danny Ainge golf before the playoff game in the middle of the series. Very interesting how these players, maybe they were a lot closer than we thought they were. Maybe old people be lying. In terms of, we ain't want to mystify this era of nobody had friends and everybody was killers. People had friends. It's okay for people to have friends in the industry. You and another guy may be really close if you're a CEO of a company with another CEO in your same industry. You guys are friends. You're competitors. You want to beat that guy, but it's perfectly okay to be friends. Episodes five and six are going to be very interesting. Mike, in the preview that already came out, Mike was talking about how he's scoring a bunch of points on the Knicks his last time in the garden as a bull. But he's wearing a pair of original Jordan 1s that are a size too small. And by halftime, his feet are bleeding. But he's having a great game, so he does not want to take the shoes off in case that they, he might throw off his feng shui or his mojo or he might have a bad game. He finished with 42. So playing basketball in original Jordan 1s that are a size too small, he scores 42 in his last trip at the Garden. And if that doesn't speak to Michael Jordan's competitive and win-at-all-cost mentality, I don't know what does. I am very excited for episodes five and six. And up next, we're going to recap the draft and touch on the impact of coronavirus in this draft process. Now, we're going to recap the NFL draft and all of the twists and turns. Now in our special edition episode, we recap the first round, in which case the biggest shocker was Jordan Love being traded up for by the Green Bay Packers. Now Brett Favre said he spoke to Aaron Rodgers about this, and although he wasn't speaking for Aaron Rodgers, he definitely told us a lot of personal things that it sounds like he was speaking for Aaron Rodgers. It would be like if someone had a conversation with you about your job 
and then was like, I'm not speaking for them, but they sound, but they're very unhappy at their job. They wish their manager would work better. They wish their hours were better. They wish their pay was better. And then goes, but I'm not speaking for them. No, that's just a gut feeling I got from the interaction. Well, that's pretty much what Brett Favre did to Aaron Rodgers. He didn't directly quote Aaron Rodgers, but he said, I have a gut feeling about how he's feeling. And then proceeded to tell us a lot of very direct and very poignant thoughts that seems to only come from somebody who he said he wasn't quoting. But there were a few other shockers. Um, Not quite as big as Jordan Love to the Packers, but Philadelphia Eagles taking Jalen Hurts in the second round. Head coach Doug Peterson defended the move, saying that it was a good selection, which pure talent-wise, it may have been. But you just signed your 27-year-old quarterback to a massive contract. And although Carson Wentz is injury-prone, he is only 27. He's in the first year of a contract. You can't move for another two seasons. Even if you decide, okay, Jalen Hurts is the better quarterback, you can't move the contract for two more seasons, similar to the way the Packers are stuck with Aaron Rodgers' contract for a minimum of two more seasons. I believe the Cowboys had a very good draft. They got CeeDee Lamb at 17, where Steven Jones admitted that they didn't have a scenario where CeeDee Lamb was still there at 17. I personally had him going 12 to the Las Vegas Raiders, but I didn't think he would be there at 17. Neither did the Cowboys, neither did CeeDee Lamb more than likely. And so they got a great pick there. And there's a new number 88 in town with CeeDee Lamb going to the Cowboys. All in all, there were not any terrible drafts. I think the head scratching draft was the Packers, obviously, drafting three offensive linemen, all rated as guards a power running back out of Boston College, and a quarterback that you hope does not see the field for at least two to three seasons. I think that they punted on the rest of the Aaron Rodgers era. They basically told Aaron Rodgers, this is no longer your team anymore. This is no longer your franchise. And we're now building to the future not so dissimilar from the way that the Packers did handling the transition from Brett Favre to Aaron Rodgers when Rodgers took over after sitting behind Favre for those years. And now they seem to be transitioning the team to prep Jordan Love to take over the team in the not so distant future, along with changing their offensive style to a more run-based franchise. The Packers chose to not participate in the draft's arm race, which in a situation where a lot of the league loaded up and the Packers seemed to take a step back by not adding anything of value, the Las Vegas Raiders selecting Henry Ruggs instead of Jerry, Judy, or CeeDee Lamb was interesting, but then they finished out the rest of their draft pretty solidly. So outside of the Packers, there was no real eye-opening, what were they doing drafts. Miami had a great draft, being able to sit at number five and still getting Tua, along with finishing that team and putting a lot of pieces together. The Patriots did a lot of moving, ended up getting a lot of players, no real big name value anywhere, but that's just the Patriot way, getting a lot of different players that can fill needs for Bill Belichick's team. But all in all, it was a great draft weekend. The NFL did a wonderful job in presentation and showing the guys with their families and having different people do the picks like always, even though Mr. Goodell went past the first round, which he never does. He usually passes it off after the first round, but it was great to see the family atmosphere of all the different people and hopefully that's something they can continue for guys who won't be invited into the green room in the future 
they send them a camera and 32 hats and if you get picked you put on a hat you celebrate with your family and hopefully that's something they can continue but i really enjoyed the draft it was the first live sports we'd had in 40 days and so it was well worth it now one of the things that was unfortunately missing from this nfl draft was right after the draft the usual frenzy of undrafted free agent signings that's usually when 20 to 25 guys per team get signed quickly to fill out rookie minicamp rosters but unfortunately due to coronavirus we are probably not going to have rookie minicamps so that's up to 10 guys per team maybe more depending on the team situation not being able to showcase their talent in front of NFL team this upcoming season. So usually right after the draft, and it's been a thing where sometimes prospects would even tell teams don't pick them in the seventh round because they'd rather have their pick and choose of teams after the draft. But those guys get 10 or 12 undrafted free agent rookie minicamp offers where they can go and try out over the course of rookie minicamp, possibly OTAs, even as far as into the preseason to get their opportunity if they were not drafted. And it's hurting a lot of small school guys that didn't get their chances to even have their pro days. Now they won't get rookie minicamp deals and it will strongly affect the pipeline for the next year's class. Maybe those guys train for a year and now they get to fight for those rookie spots the next season. This virus resulted in the cancellation of the HBCU combine. That's supposed to get a lot of guys from the HBCU schools that don't have the chance to play on national TV every week to get national exposure, their own private chance in front of all 32 teams, and a bunch of other situations that small school guys can take advantage of that unfortunately were canceled because of this. And that is something that is a strong negative and something that I usually enjoy seeing the 20, 25 guys get their shot in front of every team in the NFL spread all over the country and coaches talk so maybe there's a tight end that really played well for the Buccaneers but he just wasn't going to fit on that roster so Bruce Arians picks up the phone calls Anthony Lynn for the Chargers hey I know you guys need a tight end take a second or third look or bring this guy in for a workout now he may land on the Chargers just because he worked out well for the Buccaneers and now that guy may not have an opportunity and that's something that's a strong negative hopefully we can get that rectified early in the preseason when football comes back but all in all it was a great draft weekend i thoroughly enjoyed it and now we're going to touch on my plan to reopen the nba all right guys so i know one of the biggest things that's going on right now is the nba trying to reopen and to finish its season Now, I know that baseball and hockey are also struggling with these ideas, trying to get things going to where they can reopen their seasons or in both of those sports cases to even start those seasons. But the NBA is at a unique advantage. They played a vast majority of their seasons and most of the playoff spots are all but clinched. So I believe if they want to finish their season, the best possible way is to roll right into the playoffs. Now, people think of travel, and different things in terms of coronavirus testing. Now, I believe that the best possible way is to play at a central location. Let's say Las Vegas. Vegas has a hotel space to take all 16 teams and you test every single player, staff member, coach, and any other member of the traveling party before that team departs. If anybody tests positive for the coronavirus, that player 
or staff member is out for two weeks. It is no different than a player getting a sprained ankle in a practice or getting suspended or anything other than that. It is the same thing as like a staff member getting a flu and being away from the team on the road trip. They are out for two weeks and cannot fly the private plane to Las Vegas. Each team will receive a floor in a hotel in a centralized location. That way we limit the amount of exposure to different people. Everyone gets a floor and everyone gets their own meeting room and practice time and stuff like that. Games can be played all at the Thomas and Mack Center. The same way that the NBA Summer League is played. And due to the nature of the playoffs, you don't have to have all the games in one day. So the Summer League plays three or four games back to back to back to back. Well, the beauty of the NBA playoffs is only two games are played per day. So you can play the East Coast team at 7 and play the West Coast team at 10.30. Or play the East Coast team at 6 and the West Coast team tips off for 10 o'clock. That way you keep the same schedule of the ESPN and TNT deals and you get the same amount of time between games. A lot of times in the first round you get two days between games 2 and 3. You turn around and get over two days between three and four and this way you pretty much get a guaranteed two days between games now i know the big pushback of that idea when it was floating around preliminary stages was that people away from their families for six weeks in my proposal they wouldn't be the same thing as if you sweep a team you get to not play for a week if you sweep a team you go home you go home for a week now the risk reward to that is everyone has to get tested before coming back to vegas if anyone tests positive, they're out for two weeks. So it'll be the risk reward, same thing. It's like getting a sprained ankle in a practice or getting the flu and can't make the road trip. But if you test negative and you find out you don't have the virus, then you can go back to Vegas and start playing the second round. It'll allow people to practice in a centralized location. You know everybody there doesn't have it. There's no fear of contracting it while on the court and everybody can play freely. I personally think this is the best idea. Obviously you do it without fans. You make sure everybody doesn't have the virus that made the trip because NBA teams fly private back and forth. There's no chance of some odd cross-contamination where you pick it up from a passenger on the plane with you because NBA teams are flying private. And that way you get the NBA playoffs back. You get it back in a timely manner. And beyond that, you get it back in a safe manner. Sure, it'll be a little weird watching big NBA stars play with no fans. But considering the times we live in, this is probably the best case scenario if we want to get an NBA season back in a timely manner. Now, the NBA may have lucked into a gold mine. I don't think the NBA should be playing basketball in October and November. It doesn't make sense. You're fighting directly, ratings-wise, and money-wise, and advertising-wise with the NFL and the harder college football season. I think the NBA may have gotten a blessing in disguise and allow them to permanently push their schedule back where opening day is on Christmas. Think about it. At Christmas Day, college football season is all but done. Sure, you have the college football playoff left, but that's played on a Saturday. Most of your big bowl games are played on a Saturday. You know New Year's Day is reserved for the Rose Bowl and the Sugar Bowl, so the NBA doesn't play that day. They allow college football to have their day. The NFL playoffs are commencing, but they're only played on Saturdays and Sundays. So again, you may lose ratings on Saturday and Sundays, but that's when you may take your games and put them on NBA TV that day. You don't even have ESPN and TNT games during the NFL playoff season. And then starting February 10th or 11th, 
you have the entire rest of the year completely free of the NFL and collegiate football. There's nothing impeding you from having massive ratings, from having exclusive advertising rights. You only really have the first month of the season that is clogged with having the NFL and college football there. And that may slow your ratings down the first month, but the first month is usually the rough basketball anyway. Turnovers are up, and it's usually the weird time of basketball anyway. Like the Knicks could start off 8-4 and four for some odd reason, or the Timberwolves start off really well. And then usually around the middle of the season, things come back down close to the mean, and the good teams show themselves and the bad teams don't. But sometimes it could be a good team that came together, like the big three Heat and started off 8-7. and seven. Or when the Warriors first came together with Kevin Durant, they came out the gates roaring. But you can tell there was some weird basketball going on. And while that's happening, most fans will be watching the NFL anyway. You can get rid of that out. And when your best products are ready to get on the floor, you'll be completely unopposed from football, which is absolutely the king of TV. They have the number one rated show every year. They usually have nine of the top ten rated spots on CBS and ESPN and the channels that they come on are NFL games. I mean, you look at the rankings at the top 10. Nine of them are NFL games. Five of those nine are usually Cowboy games. And that's just because football is king. And the bigger the brand in football, the more games you're watched. I believe that they should start back up. Let's say around June 1st with practice. Have guys play about 30 days of practice. I think 30 days is a good time. July 1, begin the playoffs in Vegas, or if you don't want to go to Vegas, you can go to Walt Disney at the ESPN World of Sports and Walt Disney. You can go there. They have multiple courts. You can play there with no fans just as easily. And you play the six-week playoffs. Like I said, test everyone before they get on the plane. Obviously, testing is not perfect. Testing is not as expedient as we would like. But if you test everybody, let's say three days out. And you tell them you have to go in isolation for these three days until we find out who's positive and who's negative. If all 12 guys come back negative, you have a full roster. If a star like LeBron or Kawhi comes back positive, they have to sit their first round series or second round series out. It'd be no different than them getting a sprained ankle. I think that is by far the best way to get this thing going. It's the safest way. It's the most practical way. And I believe that the NBA should really take a look at that. And that's something they should try and consider. We all want NBA basketball. We all want live sports. And we all want stuff to come back and try to gain some sense of normalcy. If the NBA can come back and have a playoff, a six-week playoff, even if they have no fans, even if there's games back-to-back on the same court, even if there's any of that stuff, if they can come back and provide an escape for people that may be at home or have been at home this entire time, and we can watch some great quality NBA basketball, playoff basketball at the highest level, competing for a championship, no one's going to care in 30 years that we took a two-month break from the season. Who's hoisting the trophy at the end of the year? That's all anyone's going to care about. We had the strike sword in the season. No one cares. We had the lockout sword in the season, and no one cares. The benefit of seeing somebody hoisting the Larry O'Brien trophy at the end of this season is all anyone's going to remember. Now, fans may remember that, oh, that was the year of the coronavirus season. But in the end, everybody had to play the same schedule. Everybody had the same break. Everybody had the same opportunity to make the playoffs as everybody else. 
So this would not be looked at with an asterisk. Or this would not be looked at as some crime against basketball if they decide to finish the season. And I definitely think that my proposal is the absolute best way to finish it, giving practicality and the necessity to have no fans and the most desired place to have one location and desire to have people see their families. Because, you know, like I said earlier, if you sweep your series, well, you have an extra week because the playoffs are slotted in time slots anyway. So you can go home for a week and visit your family. Now you do run the risk of contracting the virus and being out the next series. But I think guys are willing to take that risk to go see their families instead of being away from them if you win the championship for up to six weeks. But I think that the NBA could be a beacon and something that could really help people in this time. And I think they need to look at multiple ways of coming back. I think that my idea is a great idea. I hope somebody from the NBA office hears it inside to implement it so we can get basketball back. But that is all I have today, guys, in this episode. We covered a lot of great topics today, going from the NCAA, starting the process to allow athletes to profit from their likeness, to covering the last dance Jordan documentary, which I am so excited to see episodes five and six, to finishing our draft recap from rounds two through seven and the undrafted free agent market, and touching on the return of the NBA. I hope you guys had a great time. I would like for you to subscribe to the podcast on Spotify and Apple Podcasts and follow the Twitter at JTimesports, all caps, and tell your friends about us. Share us, like us, drop comments, reviews. I'm open to topic suggestions. I cannot wait for next week's episode. We will touch on the last dance and we will cover a full breakdown of the NFL schedule release. It's one of my favorite parts of the season. I cannot wait for that. And I hope you guys have a great day. Thank you.